Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. You could argue life is a series of risks. And if you really wanted to learn how to grit your teeth in the face of those risks, you'd visit America's biggest casino, Wall Street. But as it turns out, that might not be the best move. When you look at these sort of untraditional markets, certainly ones that make you uncomfortable, you see these subtleties that you never noticed before, and that really helps deepen your understanding. Alison Traeger has been studying risk for most of her adult life, and it's the kind of risk you might expect related to the thorny journey of saving money for retirement, which we'll get to. But she argues Americans live at a time when risk has fundamentally changed. And some of the best people to teach you how to think about managing that risk, they compete in professional poker tournaments, they work in legal brothels, and they surf the biggest waves in the world. I had an idea that, and I've always felt strongly that, you know, every market runs on risk, not just financial markets, which is what people normally think of when they think of measuring risk or reducing risk. But risk always drives price. Schrager is the author of the book An Economist Walks into a Brothel. And she says one of the odd paradoxes of life in the U.S. is how much risk has faded away. Well, if you think about it, I mean, through most of human history, I mean, there was a really good odds you were not going to live to 40 or even 60. And, you know, you would have children and like probably two thirds of them wouldn't survive childhood. I mean, people used to deal with really serious risks, famines, wars, you know, terrible things. Of course, there are still famines and wars, but even those threats have lessened in recent years. The rate of people dying from famine around the world, for example, is one one hundredth of what it was in 1960. I mean, we feel a lot of risk. It's interesting. I think humans just innately feel risk, even if you think about it. We're not really facing the serious risks we used to, yet I don't think that has stopped people from having a lot of fear. Certainly, as the economy goes through a big transition and the world feels uncertain, people are very attuned to risk. I think people are fearing a lot of risk. I think that explains a lot of the populism we're seeing. But at the same time, when you think about it, you think it's never been a better time to be alive from a risk perspective. Still, there are clearly places where lots of risks exist and where some very smart people have figured out how to grapple with those risks in surprising ways. Which brings us, or really brings Allison Schrager, to the Moonlight Bunny Ranch in Nevada. So sex works are an interesting industry, and it is, a, it is illegal in most of America except for a handful of counties in Nevada. And generally, it's a very risky business to be in for both buyers and sellers. For providers, they risk violence, they risk arrest, you know, all sorts of horrible things. And even you think the, the buyers also have a great deal of risk put on them. You think of all these high-profile people who were you know, caught visiting a sex worker and had their careers and reputations destroyed. And even for the average person who isn't high profile, I mean, you're risking arrest, you're risking blackmail. So it's a fairly risky transaction. But in spite of that, there's just this large demand for it. Which is why Dennis Hoff, who passed away in 2018, figured out how to de-risk it. He owned several legal brothels, including the Moonlight Bunny Ranch, and he understood getting rid of risk can be expensive. Schrager says the average hourly rate at the ranch was $1,400, but to lots of customers, it was worth it. You go there, you know, everything's legal, so you don't have to worry about law enforcement. All the women are tested for diseases regularly. 
And you know, they even if you charge it on a credit card, will have some innocuous sounding charge. So from the buyer's perspective, it's totally risk free. I mean, said if Robert Kraft had spent that time in the brothel, this would have never happened to him. And how do you de-risk this transaction for the women? Well, pretty much the same answer as for their clients money. They have really good security there. So they don't have to worry about law enforcement. They don't have to worry about violence. But everyone has to pay a premium for this. And this is this reoccurring theme in financial markets and in my book and every market I find is that it costs to reduce risk or you can get more, pay less and get more if you're willing to risk loss. The security guards at the ranch will even escort the women home if for any reason they feel uncomfortable. And even, I mean, there's been a lot of instances of women feeling uncomfortable, and it could be a big client who spends a lot of money there, and they are, they'll ban him from the brothel for life if he makes the women uncomfortable. What everyone who's part of this transaction has realized is how hard risk is for humans to handle. We think we can handle it when we invest in stocks or when we make a bet in a casino, but we often struggle to deal with the fallout. Which is why Schrager says she has never met a shrewder business person than Shelby Starr, a top income earner at Dennis Hoff's Legal Nevada brothels. Starr made more than $600,000 a year. Well, she doesn't really get to see all $600,000. That's how much she books a year. But she, right off the bat, has to give 50% to the brothel. Hmm. And that's, I mean, that's a lot of money. I mean, you think about in the legal market, they get to keep all that. And I always ask, you know, are you comfortable with that? And they're like, well, no, but, you know, that's the deal. And that is what I pay to get rid of all this risk. And that's not all of it. Because she's a legal sex worker, she's also a 1099 employee, which means that she also has to pay taxes on that. So in the end, you know, 600000 sounds like a lot. Mm-hmm. And there's about a 300% markup above the illegal market. But when you account for all her expenses, she might might be better off working illegally. I mean, not from a risk perspective, but at least from a financial one. Well, and so when you ask her, so my gosh, if you're making so much money, why don't you work illegally? What does she say to you? She's like, you know, it's just too risky. A lot of the women I spoke to and I asked all of them this is they don't want to work illegally. They just don't like the idea of breaking the law. They don't want to face that risk. They don't want to go through the trouble of screening clients. And it's getting harder to screen clients with new legislation that's been passed. So they just are scared. I even met several women who have worked illegally, and they all had really bad experiences of being beat up, being blackmailed. And they're just like, it's just not worth it. Hmm. So what does this tell us about risk and what it really means to us and sort of what the costs are that are associated with it? Well, throughout our lives, we're every day, and it could just be a decision of how long you're going to give yourself to go to work. We're always making risk return trade-offs. And I think often risk feels overwhelming because we don't the trade-offs aren't always clear to us. But we're always deciding, you know, am I going to you know, pay less and get more. I mean, as I said, this all for me relates back to the retirement problem, which is if you take more risk in your portfolio, you can save less and get the same amount of money if that pays off for you. But you mm-hmm. also have the risk of loss. Right. So whether or not you're deciding to do that or, you know, in a more extreme case, you know, visit a sex worker, which aren't really the same thing at all. But they <laughs> both they both are risk decisions in their own way, which is am I willing to pay less in risk loss and get the same? Or am I willing to pay for certainty? And how much is that certainty worth for me? And I think when that's clearer, all decisions get clearer. It can be anything from when you decide whether or not to get an extended warranty. You know, how much does this cost? What sort of security am I getting? 
It's interesting, you know, to go back to the brothels for a minute where the prices are very high for the clients. Um, the women have to give a ton of money, a ton of their money away um, to the brothel itself. And everybody's doing this to de-risk their investment. They're just willing to pay it. You have this amazing quote from one of the women who works there. And she said, this quote, most of the guys are just lonely. Many of them don't even want sex, which is an incredible dimension to the story, to this question of like, well, how much risk are people willing to pay for sex? It turns out maybe this is a more complicated story than we even realized. It is. You know, I was intrigued by this story. So I went to the brothel three times for different stories. And it's not like I find sex work in, in, intrinsically that interesting. But I found so many levels of it surprising. And it's just like you, you, you keep wanting to understand it better because – and this is also in some ways a risk transaction in that the most popular service there, the service that gets the biggest premium is something called the girlfriend experience, which isn't even really about sex. The highest earners are all ones who give this service, which is called GFE because it's so common. And it, it is like almost this feeling of intimacy and safety. Although to have that in a real relationship, you know, you, you risk heartbreak. You, you really mm. are vulnerable. Hmm. But when you go to a brothel and you pay for it, you're not vulnerable at all. I mean, it's not real. But that's another markup they're paying for is this sort of illusion of intimacy and safety, hmm. but no risk of rejection. Well, you talked uh, briefly before about how we all try uh, to more smartly kind of de-risk our lives now. Um, and we're doing it in ways we've never been able to before. So um, one small example of this is you head home at the end of the day, and this is at least what I do. Um, I will check my route on my phone, mm -hmm. like basically as I head out the door to try to avoid bad traffic. And it's a very minor action, but not that long ago, de-risking that drive in that way would not have been an easy thing to do. Yeah. I mean, this is the exciting thing. I think what most people don't appreciate about technology, when we think about technology, we think about risk because it means change. But most technology is intended to de-risk or help us measure risk. And I mean, I think we're seeing that a lot now, especially with more data, because data is how we measure risk. So the age of big data means better risk measurement and tools to understand risk. Or I mean, so do you think if you use this technology on your phone, it might even give you a route and then something will change and they'll sort of reroute re you. I mean, it's, it's a great way to manage risk. And I, I have a chapter about that. Technology is a big theme running throughout my book because it is both poses a risk mm -hmm. and reduces risk. And I actually got to go to a conference in Hawaii, uh, big wave surfers have, where mm -hmm. they discuss the role technology plays in for them in risk because all this technology they have makes surfing safer, but it also emboldens them to take more risk. And those risks impose risks to others. Big wave surfing. So they're, they're sitting around at a conference. This is fascinating. There's, big wave surfers are sitting around at a conference like calculating their risk of surfing big waves. Yeah, yeah, you know, and it's amazing because we're in this windowless conference room on the north shore of Hawaii. And, you know, it's like a pension risk conference in some ways. We're in this windowless conference room. There's a PowerPoint <laughs> yeah. and there's numbers. But everyone's really great looking and in shorts and flip-flops. But, you know, once you get past that, and I, it took me a while to do that, you know, you listen. And it's like not only one are they talking about risk measurement, and it's very similar to a pension conference that we're just looking at numbers. But they're also talking about systemic risk and how when we take risks and pose risks to others, who bears responsibility for that? And how do you make people more mindful of that, which is 
all people talk about in finance conferences too. Right. You know, if you lever up and take a ton of risk and that poses some systemic risk that's going to bring down the financial situation, how is that best regulated? How do you put this on the individual versus the regulator? And that is honestly what we spent most of the time at the Surface Conference talking about, talking about too. So let's talk about one more uh, unusual group to learn about risk from, um, and that's the paparazzi, who, of course, fall around famous people and take uh, surreptitious pictures of them. Um, what drew you to the paparazzi, and why did you think they'd have a new and interesting way of looking at risk? Well, I didn't know at first. I've just always been curious about them, and they are often camped out near where I live. So um, my way of relaxing has always been to read celebrity glossies. I don't know why. It just puts me in a Zen place. And so I've always been curious about it. So I just started asking them questions because it makes sense. This would be a very risky job. I mean, your income is so unpredictable and that, you know, you're following these celebrities all over the place and you can get that money shot. I think I wrote about uh, one of the pictures that, you know, was really notable was when Kristen Stewart was caught having an affair with the director of the film she was in when she was still dating Robert Pattinson. And, you know, this was like a career making shot for this photographer. He probably made enough money from that where he never had to work again. Wow. And the only reason he got it was because they're taking some bunch of pictures of her leaving the gym. Everyone else went home and he's like, "Ah, maybe I'll follow her, see where she goes. And then, boom, you know, his life has changed. So you face so much of what we call in finance idiosyncratic risk, which is just the risk that you're going to be lucky and at the right place at the right time. And in finance, it's like the risk that an individual stock is just going to rise and fall because something unique to that company. So it's a risk unique to that individual paparazzo. And the paparazzi are in this incredibly high risk occupation, but they think about this idea of like pooling risk in some ways. How does that work? Yes. So it's, 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 I said they're actually way more interesting than the people they're photographing often. And so, you know, idiosyncratic risk in finance can be eliminated if you buy a lot of stocks. So if you own a mutual fund, you don't have to worry about idiosyncratic risk because every one that goes up, the other goes down. Right. So the paparazzi also are trying to pool their risks. So what they do is they form these alliances. And what that does is that pretty much pools your your luck. So, you know, if you're like, oh, my God, Kristen Stewart is, you know, making out with this director, you know, come now. It's less random. The guy I followed, uh, Santiago Baez, he spent two weeks stalking a celebrity to get a photo of their new baby, you know, because it's, it's getting harder to make a living at this just because the industry's changed. So the most common photos are called Just Like Us photos, which are pictures of celebrities doing boring things. But those don't pay much anymore. So you really want to invest your resources into finding, you know, a picture of a new baby. Okay. So you spent two weeks stalking Carrie Russell right after she had her baby, leading up to when she had her baby and after she had it. And he, you know, invested. He, you know, saw her mother going in. And then he knew that she had a doctor's appointment. I'm not sure how. And so he knew she was leaving. But then he also learned there was a back door to her apartment. So what he did is he called in another paparazzo to sit Mm. on the back door while he sat on the front door. So he ended up having to share all that money for two weeks of work. Mm. But it's just also because other paparazzos from different alliances were starting to sniff around. It was just too great a risk to take that on his own because he might either get 50 percent with a very high probability or get potentially nothing. What should people who have that kind of job or, um, you know, like they're a professional poker player, huge, huge risks, 
What should that kind of person teach a normal person with like a normal amount of risk in their lives about how to handle risk? Well, different lessons from each of them. I think the lesson from the paparazzi is you should diversify. You always think I can do better if I go out on my own. You always are tempted of I'm going to pick the next Amazon, Mm, right? Like Because if you diversify, you give up the big gains of picking the next Amazon because, you know, if Amazon goes up, something else went down. But the odds are you're not going to pick the next Amazon. But on average, you're going to do a lot better if you just buy a mutual fund. So take the lesson from the paparazzi and that don't cheat on your alliance. Just hold a mutual fund. On average, you'll do better. The poker player is a different lesson, which is all about how we can overcome our behavioral biases that undermine good risk decisions. Hmm. So when you play poker or in general, we suffer from what's known as loss aversion, which is when we're down, we're inclined to take more risks to not be down. And when we're up, we tend to take fewer risks. And if you play poker, that means if you're losing, you play more aggressively than when if you're winning. But the poker player, is Phil Helmuth, who's a very famous, successful poker player, says you can't do that if you're going to be successful. You have to play consistently whether you're up or down. And he also is cutting all these other side deals with the other poker players. So when it comes down to the final round, he's guaranteed to at least win something. Alison Traeger is an economist. She's a journalist at Quartz and the author of An Economist Walks Into a Brothel. I'm Karen Miller. You're listening to Innovation Hub. Um, let's talk a little bit about like the main core of what you really studied and what you like sort of you know built your whole career around, which is this idea of retirement. And um, you know, we talked about in some ways being in a less risky world in terms of medicine, in terms of like many more of our children survives than they would have hundreds of years ago. Um, but at the same time, we've also almost completely left the world of the pension, which was like a really defined amount of money that people got after they retired. And we've either entered the world of no retirement savings or a lot of people now have 401ks, um, which is kind of a do-it-yourself approach. Um, If somebody has a 401k rather than a pension, this really, really defined thing, do they have to think about risk in a different way? Absolutely. And in fact, they should think about it more like they did when they had a defined benefit plan if they were lucky enough to have one. I mean, this was what I've been doing my research on since grad school, which is how do you manage risks in 401k plans? Because it's, you know, people often, I think, don't give people enough credit. We often think personal finance should be easy. And it, it is actually, a, it's a hard problem. Yeah. I think people think it's easy because everyone does it. But that doesn't mean it's easy. It's actually figuring out how much to save, how to spend, how to invest over the course of your lifetime isn't necessarily as easy as it looks. And particularly now that we've put this huge risk problem on people, which is know how much to save, know how to invest. And then when you retire, know how much you can spend each year and how you need to invest when you have no other form of income coming in. Right. And the stakes are so high. Like all that's at stake here is the rest of your life, but it's fine. Just go ahead and see what you can do. Yeah, because, you know, we we kind of moved into this 401k world, and I'm not opposed to 401ks. I think a good 401k can be great, and I think it's a workable structure. But I think we sort of led people astray by we sort of went in with 401ks thinking, all right, well, people will save and invest for themselves, and we thought about ways we can make that easier. But we never really thought through, well, what are people actually going to do when they retire? You sort of arrive at retirement, hopefully, with this nice pile of money. But then what are you supposed to do with it? How much can you spend each year? What does investment look like? And, you know, never mind all these huge health expenses that you're facing. 
So this is actually the hard part of the problem. And we haven't really given people any tools or advice of how to deal with it. And I mean, I think that's a huge flaw in the whole 401k world. So when you had a defined benefit plan, if you were lucky enough to, you know, this was taken care of for you. You're, you, didn't, you weren't thinking in terms of wealth. You were thinking in terms of income, mm-hmm. which is your employer, if you looked at your statement, would say, all right, you have this many wage credits and this many tenure credits. So that means you're going to get this much money a year. But when we look at our 401k, we're just like, oh, I hope I have a million dollars by the time I retire. But that doesn't really tell you anything about how to turn that into income when you retire. So you nearly need to approach your 401k to think in terms of income like you would have if you had a defined benefit plan versus wealth, because then it sets up this huge disconnect of not knowing what to do when you actually retire. So then what matters is not like how much money you have, but how much income you're going to have every year. Just like what matters to you now, probably, is how much you have coming in each year. What will matter to you when you're 72 would be the same thing. It's totally the same thing. And in fact, you're even more vulnerable when you're 72 because you don't have other sources of income. I mean, and you might have bigger health expenses. Yet for some reason, you know, when people give you advice on what you should do after retirement, they often are like, oh, just invest in stocks and take out 4% of whatever it is each year, which would give you this really variable income in your most vulnerable years. It's crazy. So you want to think in terms of income. But the thing is, it's hard about that, is investing for income and investing for wealth require two very different strategies. There is some hope on the horizon. Um, The SECURE Act, which is, I think, currently in the Senate and was passed by the House a couple weeks ago, would require 401k statements to put your wealth balances in income terms. How? I don't know. But it's certainly a big step in the right direction. Hmm. It also seems like in this new way that we have to deal with risk in terms of retirement, you have to deal with these. You have to like keep in check these very human emotions, which are basically when people see their money disappearing. I, I think of like the crash in two thousand eight. Um, they panic and they want their money back. Uh, you know, and I and similarly, when money goes way up, they think, well, this is the greatest thing. I should take riskier investments. Why not? I mean, riskier investments uh, could only yield good things because that's all they seem to be doing. And it's just it's really hard to keep. I've seen it with people I know. It's super hard to keep those human emotions in check. It, probably professional poker players are way better, right? Because they know they have to keep their emotions in check. Like their life depends on it. Most people don't have to do that in their day-to-day life. And then you involve their 401k and it's just like a whole different thing. Yeah. I mean, people still say that, oh, you know, I lost so much money in my 401k in the financial crisis. I mean, the market has come back and then some since then. But people still feel like they lost something. And I mean, I think this is one of the reasons I was really motivated to write the book is now that we've moved to 401ks, we've put this huge risk problem on people without any sort of tools of how to think about risk and this risk reward trade-off, which is if you want more growth, you have to take on risk to get that. Mm-hmm. If you're uncomfortable with risk, you you should be in a safer portfolio and be comfortable with the idea that you're going to earn less returns. I know it's easier said than done, but it definitely starts with more education of being like, my friend down the hall at work, I know his 401k is growing faster than mine, but you know what? He's in riskier portfolio and I'm just not comfortable mm-hmm. after, you know, what happened 
in 2008, I never want to experience that again. So I'm going to take lower growth in exchange for that. Or if you're the sort of person who's like, well, yeah, my 401k fell 40% and that was really hard, but you know, it's come back and you know, I know it might probably fall again. And I understand that this is the market and this is how it works. Then yeah, invest in riskier assets. There's no shame in risk aversion and there's no shame in risk being more risk tolerant, but you just have to figure out what's right for you and what you're comfortable with. In in visiting all these like unconventional places or talking to these people um, who are thinking through risk, um, whether it's in the military, it's in Hollywood or it's in brothels or wherever, what was something you learned? I mean, you've been studying risk like your entire professional career in school. Um, what was something you learned about risk that maybe surprised you? I said I was in academia and kind of thought this was my thing. And I was just so surprised at how many sophisticated risk tacticians there were out there. Some of them didn't even finish high school and just really think about risk in a very sophisticated way. And really, as I said, could teach me subtleties about risk markets I never really thought of. Hmm. I never really realized how idiosyncratic risk really goes beyond financial markets. So I said everyone taught me something, but I think the biggest surprise overall is how easy it was to find people who could teach me a lot. Alison Traeger is an economist. She's a journalist at Quartz and the author of An Economist Walks into a Brothel. Alison, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. So are you comfortable with risk? Are you more risk averse? On our website, we'll look at how, paradoxically, those who dislike risk often end up taking the biggest risks of all. That's at innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, associate producer Sarah Leeson, and engineer Doug Sugertz. We also had production help from Emily Griffinius. And this week, we say farewell to our fantastic intern, Nadia Lewis, We wish her lots of luck. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.